There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Roisin. Yes. Zelia Banks. Of whom I knew very little, actually, up to very recently. You made me read up about her. And in all honesty, since reading what I have, I feel guilty about giving her the oxygen even of the women's podcast. Okay, well, we won't talk about it too long. And you're not on your own because a lot of people have been saying who's Azalea Banks, to which people who are very big fans of Azalea Banks are most outraged because she has quite a cult following. Now, the thing about Azalea is she could have a much, much bigger following she could have been playing at the three arena, selling out and all that sort of stuff. Unfortunately, she tends to clash with people quite a lot. That's putting it diplomatically. And she came to Ireland and she's clashed as soon as she got on the Aer Lingus flight. She was very, very rude to the, to the staff there. She started calling Irish people Oompa Loompas and um, all sorts Oompa of Loompas things. in the Ming spray hand. Yeah, Oompa Loompas no, I did see a bit of agreement she with that. She said Irish, people are, Irish women are ugly, um, which you know, no one wants to hear. And like, I, I keep laughing when I talk about it because it's so unbelievable like I wish someone would make a little film about it actually because I think it's it's kind of hilarious she'd called us everything you could possibly call she said the girls have scurvy they're yeah, vitamin deficient the funny- <laughs> need some calcium tablets <laughs> And she said she's the Queen of Ireland as well, which I think is a bit... Where did she get that idea from? I don't, I don't know. So she said we've got scurvy, which is something I haven't heard since probably fourth year uh, history class when I used to learn about scurvy. I think scurvy. it's a lack of vitamin C, is it? <laughs> yeah. She used to be on the ships, remember? It might look like that, actually, yeah, but, at the I moment. Mean, you can see where she's coming from. But, the, the, but then I look and it I see today... can't be both and, and be umpa But now I, I see this more because she went on... Then she went on did her gig in the Academy and um, we had a reporter go, Aoife Moriarty, who talked to punters, said, oh yeah, well, you don't go to Azalea Banks gigs expecting peace language, you know, you know what she's like. And she did say from the stage she had dedicated the gig to all the beautiful Irish women. So she she was making amends and I thought, oh, fair enough. But now I read again, but she's been off again and she's calling us inbred, Cathy. She says we're leprechauns. She said, have we not got a famine to go and die in? Now, like, that's probably where I kind of go. No. That is exceptionally terrible. Yeah. Sorry, what is she? Just, okay, just for the benefit so of people like me who didn't know. So she's a 27-year-old rapper. Um, and like I say, she's one of these people, hugely talented, people say. I mean, she's very out there. She Her lyrics are, are you know, are very outspoken. You know, she she calls herself a rude bitch and all that. And she, she, does, she makes no bones about the kind she's of... She's also a homophobic bitch. Okay. <laughs> Excuse my language. She replied to one guy as as a thirsty fatherless gay. Yeah. She's not a pleasant person. And I tend to think if I'm looking at it in a, with a kind of uh, 
more compassionate eyes. Perhaps she's not very well. Perhaps she has issues. I, I don't know. Or, or perhaps she's just a publicity hound. There's really the other thing there. Is this, this quite a strategic, clever way to get a lot of publicity um, for no money? And um, the other thing is she seems to be mates with uh, Conor McGregor. She reached out to him on Instagram saying Irish people were bullying her and could uh, could he help? So, that, Well, Roshan, can I just keeps. finish with this comment? She tweeted the front pages of the Star, the Mirror and the Sun, which were all big pictures of Azalea on them, with the caption, guess who won this round? In other words, she got the publicity, Azalea's happy. Now, she may be troubled, but there is a little bit more than trouble attached to She's Azalea. She's also a PR genius. Well, she is also a very nasty woman. Okay, I don't so care that's our final word on it. Anyway, Azalea Banks, you won't be going off listening to her records now. Is that what I'm hearing from you, Cathy? She has not made me curious about her music and that's what she should have been doing. Okay. I'm not remotely curious about Azalea, her music. Azalea, if you're listening, you have no fans here. We are, we are not... Uh... She, Azalea, you could be in the press for your music, as one person said. Remember those days? Right. Yes. So we'll move on. What do you tell me about it? It's something a b- bit more um, wholesome, I think. Something... Actually pretty incredible. And I, I'm taking most of my information from The Guardian who say we have, may have already seen the most remarkable performance from a British athlete in 2019. And that athlete happens to be a woman called Jasmine Parr. And she became the first woman to win the 268-mile spine race, which bills itself as one of the toughest endurance contests in the world. And that's jaw-dropping enough. Uh, she beat her nearest male rival by 15 hours and set a course record by 12. While pumping milk for her baby daughter at feeding stations. So not only did she do that and beat the nearest rival, who was a man, I presume, was he? Well, actually, unfortunately, he's Irish. Oh. Yeah, the previous champion was Irish, which is which is unfortunate. on this lovely story. OK, well, moving on from that. His name was Owen Keith, who obviously was... Uh, the most wonderful Irish man that most of us haven't heard of, which is yeah. an awful pity. But he was the previous record holder. Uh, so but not only did she do all that, she was expressing milk along the way. That's just incredible. And the other interesting thing about, about uh, Jasmine is that she really doesn't want to take this any further. She, she's already a vet and a scientist. She's writing up her PhD as we speak. She doesn't want a contract. She doesn't want a major sponsor. She's very happy just to do this for the sake of it. Now, isn't that something? It's very unusual. It's very unusual. And uh, I think it's it's fantastic. And I don't think she's the only woman either who's really outperforming in that particular ultra runner thing. It seems to be that women, uh, as from what I've read, are really killing it in that area. For some reason, they're doing really well. Well, if you know. meet women who've run marathons, a few of them will suggest that that uh, men start off very, very strong and tend to tend to uh, slow a bit as, as, as they go on. Uh, because they're so deeply competitive, women are a bit more measured in how they approach these things. And Jasmine said she knew that in long ultra endurance events, the physical advantages men have ready start to dwindle and the race would become about the head as well as the legs and lungs. Wow. So there's something. 
It, massive part of it is mental, she says. With ultras, it, it's always going to hurt at some point. You just have to know how to get through the bad times and express baby milk along the way. Amazing. I have to say, though, I, I will never really understand why anybody wants to do anything like that. That's just the most opposite thing that I would ever want to do. But a fair play to them is all I'm saying. It's just not my bad. And the fact that she's not doing it for fame or fortune. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. She's not thinking right now, This I can get loads of money out of this. I can become a, a kind oh. of icon or a star or whatever. She's oh. just going to go back to back doing to what Back to her 18-month-old baby and her science and her veterinary. Okay, so we talked about two very different women, I think, there. <laughs> we certainly did. And I'm so delighted with a chance to mention Jasmine Paris. So what have you got in store for us in this episode, Cathy? Well, Roisin, today I am speaking to theatre maker Darren Cody about her show, which will be at the Project Arts Centre in Dublin next weekend. It's called I'm Not Here. And it is a duet with her brother Donal, but he is, in fact, not here. Donald died almost 10 years ago, but we hear his voice in the show through recordings that were discovered years after his death by suicide. Diren's show has been described as brave, raw, essential and an emotionally exhausting performance. And you can read a brilliant piece she has written about it in Friday's Irish Times or on irishtimes.com. I spoke to Diren about that piece about how we as a society deal with, or rather don't deal with, suicide, about her show and why the audience has nothing to fear. But I began by asking Theron to tell me about Donal. Donal had an infectious laugh and he was uh, big into music and art and he worked as a carpenter in Dublin and he trained how to be a carpenter kind of between Donegal and Dublin. I have some relations up in uh, in a show and right up the top and he loved uh, going up there but he was a big fan of dance music of all music actually um, and I think he was seen as a bit of a cultural expert within his group of friends you know if a recommendation you got uh, off Donald for some art or music you know you kind of really took it seriously so a bit of a character and what happened um, Donald took his own life on the 14th of March 2009. And he was what age then? He was 23. So he was four years older than me. So I was 19 at the time. And I'm nearly turning 30 uh, this year. So um, it seems incredibly strange to think that he died almost 10 years ago. And what is that like, Theron? It's 10 years on now and... Mm. People hear about these awful tragedies and they're, they're obviously full of sympathy and warmth and do their best to make you feel better. But it's 10 years on. And what, is that, what has it been like in the meantime for you and your family? Well, um, I don't have any other siblings. Donald was my only brother. So you can imagine this was absolutely uh, insanely hard um, and still is, you know, in many ways. Um, and the effect has been that it's, you know, turned our lives upside down. Um, and for me personally, obviously I was 19. So you can imagine, you know, when you're 19, you're kind of at the beginning of everything um, feeling very optimistic and excited about uh, the beginning of adult life. And um, I suffered obviously a complete kind of collapse of meaning that this had happened to me um, and that my older brother who I'd looked up to, um, decided that it was time to go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are no words to describe the Christmas mornings or the birthdays, you know, that what they, what they feel like in the years after that. There's no words to describe, you know, the sound that a parent makes when, when they've discovered this kind of news. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, words don't, yeah. don't uh, go there. In one very powerful line in your, in your piece for the Irish Times, Darren, you say, in many ways, I stole my 20s. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose in, say, my group of friends, as people get older, you know, parents get sick and death becomes more part of life. But I think for me and my friends, obviously, you know, we had no kind of experience of, of this and certainly not, you know, a sudden tragic loss, a loss that probably shouldn't have happened, a loss that was, you know, avoidable, um, in my opinion, avoidable. And so no one really knows how to kind of support you when you're 21 and you're kind of going around and you're being a bit mad and no one really knows what to say and you don't know what to say and your parents are too um, upset themselves to be able to support you. So it's kind of, it's it's a it's a grief that's unique, you know. It's not, um, it's very similar to other griefs, but it, it, there's a, there is a total uniqueness about it. And that is... Um, you know, the, the, the suddenness and the, the, the ultimate kind of, the ultimate tragedy of it. Um, and then, you know, the questioning, the guilt, everything that goes with it that um, lasts for so long afterwards. The, um, yeah, I mean, it definitely, it shaped my 20s. It made me a bit mad, you know, probably made me kind of hard to be around some of the time. Um, but ultimately, I think it has made me a better person. Um We'll Hopefully. talk later, Darren, about how when you when you say it was it might have it might have been preventable. We'll talk about that at the end. Mm. But in the meantime, tell us a bit about about um, what it was like to feel you're on a bus and you think you see somebody who looks like Donal or you hear the name Donal being called out, mm. and how that affected you. Well, I mean that's something that anyone who's lost someone can relate to. You find yourself seeing their face in a crowd. You'll find yourself, you know, seeing an item of clothing that they might have worn and you kind of think for a second, you know, there's this flicker of um, the brain playing a trick on you, you know. And it's, it's uh, even though you know deep down the person is gone, you kind of think for a second, like, God, it, it's just triggered something in you. Um, and I think the name piece for me um, is is to do with how he died. So when, you know, if I bring up, if I volunteer my brother's name, you know, I feel the feeling in the room, you know, because people are like, oh, oh God, she's going to start talking about Donal. Like, and we don't understand what happened to Donal. And we don't understand about suicide. We don't, it's this, it's this great big mystery. Um, so... That the, the the saying of uh, in the piece I'm describing meeting someone called Donal and really enjoying saying his name because it's a name that I don't get to say very often when it's not shrouded in in kind of shame and secrecy and you know a little bit of kind of embarrassment you know about yeah what happened and just give us a sense of what that would have been like there and when your friends were thinking oh my god she's going to talk about Donal. Would you have just been talking about him or would, would there have been... I definitely uh, went through phases. You know, yeah. I think when someone has lost someone, you can end up kind of obsessing and then you also go through phases of going like, that, you know, that kind of didn't happen. I'm not bringing that up anymore. Or, you you know, you get resent... You know, there's different kind of... 
peaks and troughs of it and it doesn't move sequentially it doesn't move linearly you think you're kind of grand and then you're not grand you think you want to talk about it actually you're not in the mood you meet someone who's also lost their brother you think oh that'll be great then you start talking to me you think I want to get away from this person I don't want to remember any of this you know it's it is it's not yes. you know it's not a paint by numbers thing um, my friends were always really supportive but it, we don't no one has the language to talk about this topic because it's not like a road death. It's not like someone having, you know, a long-standing illness and we kind of cognated the fact that they might go. You woke up one day, one way, and then you get a phone call and nothing makes sense anymore. Um, so it's a complete collapse of meaning is the only way to describe it. So everyone around you is is reacting, you know, the best possible way that you can. But um, certainly for, for people of you know, when I was in my 20s, other people in their 20s were just looking at me going, I don't know. I don't know what to say to you. You know? So, Um, Theron, it's 10 years. Yes. And about five years ago, something extraordinary happened. Yes, well, that's why I'm here. I'm not just here just to kind of rake over uh, talking about my brother because obviously there's so many people like my brother and he was, I suppose, the the thing that I've learned in in doing the show and in in meeting other people who've who've lost um, siblings or partners or or friends um, to suicide is my brother was completely normal. He was completely kind of unremarkable and remarkable at the same time. He was just like me and you. You know, there was there was no kind of there's an other there's an othering that goes on. You know, well. You know, they took their own life and that's they were there was something apart about them. But I think uh, I think we all need to start acknowledging that, you know, this is part of the human condition. It's part of being alive. It's always been here. And I think we need to start thinking about it like that in a more um, compassionate way. There isn't any human who hasn't had a flash of thinking about this and to say otherwise is just insane um so five years ago I was out visiting my uh, family home and my brother died at home he wasn't living at home but he did die at home and um my dad is an avid um, or certainly was in his heyday an avid charity shop trawler and had a massive affection for um, tape recorders or anything that he could tape music on. He's a f- flautist and a whistle player. So he'd be taping himself, kind of playing an Irish tune, then, you know, going back or taping people at sessions or whatever. So he had loads of tape players around the house and he had stumbled upon this dictaphone that he had obviously bought in a charity shop many, many years ago. And he was obviously testing the dictaphone at home. I think maybe it was 2006 or 2007. And he just, you know, pressed record and went about his day, thinking, I'll come back to that later and see if it's working properly, you know. And unbeknownst to him, he recorded Donal around the house. So he found the dictaphone. And when I came in uh, one afternoon, he said, come here to me, is this this Donal singing? And he couldn't quite figure it out and he started playing the recording for me and I heard Donal singing I mean I it was unmistakable that it was him he had actually a very good singing voice for quite a musical family 
and he was singing How to Disappear Completely by Radiohead. And he was singing, I'm not here. This isn't happening. So, of course... In a little while, I'll be gone. Yeah. So I was sitting on the edge of the bed and I was... My dad was kind of still kind of talking as I was listening to the one. He was like, is it? Is it Donald? It sounds like it might be Donald. I was like, yeah, no, it is. It is Donald, Dad. And I kind of got him to stop it. And I said, will you keep that safe? Because obviously there's loads of tape recorders in the house and I thought it might get mixed up. So he put a little label on it called Donald Singing and he put it away. And it sparked a, a thing in me that I really felt, OK, there's something quite powerful has happened there. Um, Darren, what was what was your initial? That must have been an ex- almost overwhelming. It was overwhelming, but I think like I mean, I think Donald was of the generation just like we were not quite kind of recording everything, you know. Like I don't really have any videos of him, or you know. So this was kind of the closest thing. Um, it's amazing just in that ten years how you know there's kind of endless photo. Now we've loads of photographs, of course, but uh, yeah, it was just slightly, um, it was overwhelming. Um, But what I didn't, it sparked um, something in me. I mean, I'm a theatre artist, so I kind of immediately was like, oh my God, oh my God, there's a show. I don't know what to do. Press pause. I'll think about it in a little while. And what I didn't know was that on the rest of the recording, when I went to digitise it, um, I didn't realise that there was a load of other material after he finished singing. He turned on his computer and he was, um, you know, kind of mixing some tracks and singing along. And I mean, each one, in my mind, more kind of meaningful than the last. And he had no idea that he was being recorded. And it was kind of such a donal kind of moment in the in the house, you know, having a cigarette, like just singing, you know, Um so when I found the the recording in its in its totality, I I definitely knew that there was something there for me to do theatrically. Do you feel he was sending you a message, Darren? I really feel in the process of making the show that I that there has been many kind of messages coming in. Like, I mean, people will see, and obviously I'm here to encourage people to come and see me doing the show with Donal, with his music, um, next week in Project Arts Centre on the 1st and 2nd at half seven. There's just two shows and I tell you, we're never doing it again. This is it now. I've been around Canada with this show. I was uh, in the Dublin Theatre Festival in 2017 and I think it's time to, you know, put it to to rest very soon. Um, But it's... um, when When you hear the music in the show... And when you when you when you're seeing the images that I'm making and the information that I've told you before the music comes in, it's very hard to say that there isn't a message here in the room. And I think I think he has an important message to tell us, and I think we we need to listen. Was he was he sending out some kind of warnings? Did you feel that there was a that he was telling you something was going to happen? No, I don't. I, 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 I don't think so. Because that was that was seven. How, how long before we, he died? We don't. We don't. We don't actually know exactly when the recording was made. I don't think um, he knowingly, um, you know, was singing a particular song. But I think in the context of what we know now, and what we know about um, what we know about Donal and 
yeah, when we when you hear the music now, obviously it takes on a new meaning. And I think um, in the work and in the time that's passed since he has died, um, and I've become I have I feel very very close to him in the in the act of doing this show. Um, there's definitely a couple of messages coming in that he 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 thinks this is deadly, really, and that you know he thought no one could help him and that he was wrong. You know, Do you believe in the afterlife, Darren? Do you know what I believe in now? That's a hard question. It put me on the spot. Yeah. Um, I definitely, I definitely believe that Donald is okay, and I think, I think, you know, where where compassion and empathy comes in is that we have to remember that, um, you know, suicide happens in a place where there's no light. It's very hard for us to imagine a place where there is no light, no light, not even a little bit of light. So there's no logic. There's no family. There's no, there's no light. No light, Darren, in the sense that you, did you feel there was a lead up to this? You, you talked about, about prevention. Um, you talked about the questions asked, this, the, the guilt, which is what makes this particular kind of tragedy unique. Um, is it, in Donald's case, do you look back now, and you've obviously processed this through art and in every other conceivable way, do you think it, these things are preventable? Well, I'm not going to sit here and say, obviously, that all suicide is preventable. But I think there's a huge, huge, huge amount that is. And I think when it gets to, when it gets to the point where someone wants to take their own life, I think, you know, we need to scale back from that. We need to look at the conditions, the conditions that we're living in, the ways in which we are we are taught how to how to express from an early age. Are we given the skills, the language, the permission, the unconditional terms in which we can express? Do you think? And as Irish people, can we can we say that about ourselves? You think can we're we improving say, a bit? I think we are. I think we are. I think we can always do more. I think if you look at, you know, just outside the doors of this building, we, we you know, in, in Dublin alone, the living conditions for young people and for people of my generation are, are extraordinarily tough. Like we kind of have everything, but we have nothing at the same time. And like, you know, there's always more we can be doing. We need to find a way of making, I mean, this is a really kind of cliched thing, but if we think of like, you know, if the world is good enough and nice enough and welcoming enough and safe enough for us to stick around in, well then, you know what I mean? We need to kind of look at coming together a bit more and going, and not just jumping to the most extreme thing like, oh, well, like, you know, you should talk if you're feeling, you know, it's like, it's kind of deeper than that. It goes further back than that. That's when the situation is already nearly untenable. It's like, we need to go back, 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 back and get really, really deep inside ourselves and think about what's going on here. And Darren, somebody who goes to see the show, apart from sensing the grief and the loss, what will they take away from it, do you think? I think this show is for everybody. I think it's particularly potent for someone who may have lost someone um, to suicide, but I also think it's particularly potent for for anyone, really, because you... 
get closer to the idea that, um, you know, this is indiscriminate. This is not just my brother and that this can happen to anyone's brother, sister, partner. And that to take the mystery out of it a bit, you know, like when, when the reason why we're so afraid of talking about this is is because it's the shadow, yeah? So you try and, like, push the shadow away all the time in, in, in life. Uh, you try and deny its existence. You try and say, oh, someone else thinks about killing themselves, but I don't. It's not to do with me. And really, I think we need to break that break that down. And in, in the listening to Donald's voice, in the hearing him sing and in the listening to his music that he's picked for us. This is a DJ set that he never gets to play. So I, I ask people to dance with me and to dance in the not knowing. And I think in doing so, we get a little bit closer to, to figuring this out and to not shaming it and to not leaving it in the dark because that's where it becomes really scary is denying it, saying it's not there and saying you don't understand about it. Because we do understand about this and we have to talk about it more. We have to sit into it more and we have to, yeah, like feel it out together. You, one, of the, one of the powerful lines in your piece there is, is uh, some people run marathons to turn tragedy into a sense of hope and to keep the memory of their loved ones alive. And you talk about the complexity of the issue and you say it requires a context worthy of its weight. Um, has this been, has, has turning this, processing this through art been enormously helpful to you? Um, doing the show for me was always something I wanted to do. It's not healed me. I did that work myself. Um, but it has um, given me a place to express the inexpressible grief that is associated with um, loss through suicide. And it gives people an insight into the aftermath because it's the aftermath that we don't see. And when you see the aftermath, you really, you really start to kind of know about, I mean, you you start to take this thing as seriously as you should. Um, so it certainly like was artistically was kind of a congestion point for me. I've always made, you know, work about the real. And I always had this thing kind of on my shoulder going like, when are you going to make a show about, about that, you know? Um, so it was a relief to finally make it because I feel now I can keep going and make new shows and make other things. Um, but I also felt like it was, you know, like I have, as I say, I'm not a runner. I don't run marathons. Um, I mean, I wish I could. But um, I'm a theatre artist. So I was trying to use the skills that I have to mutate this into something that can have a ripple effect for change, to give voice to the voiceless, to give voice to my brother who who has something to say. And, and that is that we, we need to listen more and we need to really listen. And... Um, that they that we can that we can make that we can make things that we can make things better. I know it sounds cliched, um, but it is true. So it's kind of a. I don't look to the art to be therapeutic, but it, it ends up having obviously quite a therapeutic effect on me to see crowds of people saying my brother's name, dancing, 
and queuing up to talk to me afterwards to say, tomorrow night, will you dance for this person, giving me the name of the person that they've lost? Because you see, you know, we're not actually allowed to celebrate these people. They become how they die. And of course, you know, my brother was way more complicated than, you know, the days and weeks or months before he died. He was a whole person, you know. But unfortunately, the dramatic way that the person dies takes over. And people are interested in just the the, the little kind of dramatic kind of soap opera kind of facts. But of course, we all know it's way more complicated than that. And I think I, I invite people to to come onto the stage with me and um, and I think that's a really unifying and to call out moment. their loved one's name totally yeah and to 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 join to join in and to also to realize that in in the world obviously that we're living in religion is slipping away and people are turning to all different ways of surviving these massive life events and for me theater i mean has been there's many books written on theater and ritual and of course theater originally was all about ritual and is still about ritual so the show is very much an alternative ritual um, where we can bring my brother in, where we can, you know, there is a portal that gets opened, you know. Rituals move in specific ways and so does theatre. The minute the lights come on, the minute, you know, there's there's a there's a pattern and there's a, sp- a specific nature to the whole thing. And it's truly powerful what happens kind of at the end because, you know, in some rituals, people have, by the end, have their arms in the air and are, you know, kind of, for want of a better word, tripping out. So that's the kind of effect that this show kind of has. Um, you definitely come in one way and you leave utterly changed. You're not sitting there stunned and... and, and, and People are stunned, yeah, but I think, I think it wins them over by the end. Audiences are also invited to, they can leave whenever they want and they can come back in. So it's like, it's kind of got a gig sensibility. You know, because that's what I'm doing. I'm doing a duet with my brother. So there's nothing to fear, Darren. There is nothing to fear. And I think that's a big part of the show as well, is that fear is a massive thing about talking about suicide. We don't want to bring it up because we think, oh, they're going to start. Some, You know, someone might hear me talking about it and they're going to suddenly start. That's actually not the case. You know, when we talk about it, we are we are demystifying it. You have to walk into it. You have to see it. That's the that's my take on it. Definitely, Darren. One last question: getting getting your family to agree to having this very public show about your brother, um, their only son, was that a difficulty? My parents are endlessly supportive of my artistic life, and um, you know. They've lost their son. So when I asked them permission to to use the material that I'd found of Donal, and they were some ways taken aback, but also not because I've come home with all stories of That's our dear what I'm, Yeah, like what what is she what is she, what is she doing next? So like in one way in another way they're kind of unshockable uh, in that regard. Um, but they just said, "Yeah, this is this is that's the right thing for you to do." But we're we're not going to go and see it, and I wouldn't ask them to. I wouldn't. They wouldn't need to. They know all the 
They know all the stuff. They've lived through it. Um, and same with my close relations as well. Like I, I mean, some some of them did come. I did ask them not to come, but they came anyway. And um, but really, like I've made this show for the public, you know. And I've in doing so, I've tried to, you know, honor. I've tried my best to honor Donal, and um, and to honor his his spirit. And I feel feel passionately that this show and will stick in people's minds when when they need it most. Darren Cody, thank you so much for talking about a subject that obviously is at the root of so much tragedy here and elsewhere. Um, I'll come along. I presume there are tickets available, are there? Absolutely. Um, Projectartcentre.ie and it's the 1st and 2nd of February. It's a Friday and Saturday night. And you say this is the end. I'm no more. Well, you never say never. You see, when I, t- I might take a little break and then think, oh, maybe I'll do it again. Well, but people should bear in mind they might never get a chance to see it again. Absolutely. So I think they absolutely. should snap up the tickets while they're available. Absolutely. Darren, thank you so much for coming. Thank you to so the much for podcast. having me. And that's it for today. Thanks very much, Darren Cody, for speaking to me. And a reminder that I'm Not Here runs next weekend, February 1st and 2nd, at the Project Arts Centre. And as Darren said, this is the last time she'll perform the show. So if you want to see it, see it now. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com with lots of other good shows like Worldview and Inside Politics. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.